0: Om akhandam satyidanandam avang atmanam akhila dharam siddhai. I take refuge in the self, the indivisible, the existence, consciousness, bliss, absolute, beyond the reach of words and thought, and the substratum of all for the attainment of my cherished desire. So we are on this chapter, which is discussing the nature of the jiva. Uh, remember the original intent of the chapter. The Intent of the chapter is, what are the different types of adhyaropa, superimposition that we are doing about ourselves? Um, what do we think about ourselves? Different uh, people, different philosophers. And in the process of this examination, we are, we, are, uh, we are going to uncover the real nature of the self. So that's what's happening in this chapter. It's also a very nice whirlwind tour through Indian philosophy. Different schools of Indian philosophy are going to come forward on one issue. Um, Who am I? Uh, The way to unlock this chapter, I mentioned it last time, we have to uh, keep three things in mind. One is um, Shruti, one is Yukti, one is Anubhuti. So when each... um, Uh, each philosopher, each thinker comes and presents uh, a a theory of the self. We have to ask that, um, what is the argument? What reason are you giving? If body is the self, what is the reason? Um, Then Anubhuti, what experience experience can we call upon to support this position? Um, So Anubhuti. And then third, Shruti. Can you give any quotation, uh, any support, scriptural support for this position? So three things. Ask a question about um, yukti, reason. What reason? Why are you saying this? Um, Ask a question about experience. What experience in our daily life can you show to support your claim? And third, what um, scriptural backing can you demonstrate? And uh, with these three questions, we are looking at each theory. And remember, whom have we met so far? We have met materialists of various kinds, more and more sophisticated kinds. The first person was not a philosopher, just the common person uh, who said, "The self is my children," or you could say anything, anything beloved, you know. Uh, then we went on to the first materialist, Charvaka, who said, "Body is the self." Um, then we came to the second materialist, second position that. The sensory system is the self. And the third position was uh, that life itself is the self. And the fourth position was that um, um, the, the mind is the self, mana atma. So we had putra atma, we had deha atma, we had um, indriyani atma, we had prana atma, mana atma. So five positions altogether. Four of them are materialist philosophers and the first one of course was the common person. In each case we saw what are the arguments, what are the the, uh, appeals to experience Anubhava and uh, what are these uh, scriptural quotations they can offer. And in each case you saw the scriptural quotations are offered by these people. They don't believe in in the Upanishads of course, but because that's the style of argument Shruti, Yuktya, anubhuti that's why it's given. And uh, you can take it in this way, that your opponents are quoting your scriptures back to you so that you will be convinced. Uh, see, look, your scripture is saying, your Upanishads are saying, body is the self. And we know why all these things are happening, because they are quoting selectively from the Upanishads. When the Upanishads want to show you, for example, Taittiriya Upanishad is a favorite hunting ground for uh, these various uh, schools of thought. Taitiri Upanishad wants to show you that Atman, the self, is pure consciousness, but it teaches. The pedagogy, the method of teaching is from the gross to the subtle, from the outermost to the innermost. So It starts with the body, and it says, look, is the body the self? And then goes on to show, no, the prana is the self. No, no, the, the mind is the self. The intellect is the self. And subtler and subtler, and inward and inward. But if a particular thinker wants to... Cherry pick and pick one uh, statement out of the whole thing and say, look, the Upanishad said body is the self. So that's what's been happening here. Um, now we shall come across a very sophisticated position. The Buddhist, the Buddhists are going to make an entry now. So so far we have seen the Charvakas, varieties of materialist philosophers. Now comes the Buddhist. Um, this is text number one hundred twenty-eight. Text number one hundred twenty-eight. Bodhas tu anyantaratma vigyanamaya ha ityadi shutehe krturabhave karanasya shaktya aham karta aham bhuktah ityadi anubhavat cha buddhi ratmeti vadati as against this. The Buddhists say that the intellect is the self on account of such Shruti passages as different from and more internal than this is the self which consists of consciousness. Um, Actually here, Vijnana means intellect, not uh, pure consciousness. Owing also to the fact that the instrument becomes powerless in the absence of the agent and from such experiences as I am the agent, I am the enjoyer and so on. So what's going on here? This is the position of one of the Buddhist schools Who says but the buddhist says one of the buddhists there are multiple buddhist schools we will see one of the buddhist schools says that the intellect is the self Uh, our uh, intellectual the cognitions are the self the stream of cognitions which we have all the time the thoughts this stream of thoughts that is atma as against what the earlier one who said mind is the atma so the intellect includes the ego the one which says i am uh, this this uh, ego uh, i i am the person who's doing these things i think i speak i understand i remember i desire i enjoy i suffer karta bhokta doer and uh, the enjoyer means including suffering the experiencer basically so i am the doer and the experiencer i am the karta and the bhokta i am the one who is in charge of all the sensory system, the intellect, the memory, I, I I'm, I'm, the mind, body, memory, and I'm interacting with the world, I'm experiencing the world, I'm enjoying and suffering in the world. This person, this is normally what we think of ourselves as. Normally we think, I am this person. This person, this ego, uh, this ego which has the katritva and bhokhtritva, agentship, and experience-ship, or enjoyer, or uh, sufferer. So this is the self. It might sound abstract and dry when you put it this way, but this is mostly we sort of, uh, you know, any thinking, intelligent person would think of himself or herself as this self. I am this person embodied in this body. Uh, so this is the position of the vijñānavādi Buddhists. So buddhas too. Um, what what do they, what are they quoting Upanishads? The usual uh, suspect, Taittiriya Upanishad. Because, you know, Pancha Kosha, Viveka is going on. Annamaya, Pranamaya, Manomaya, Vigyanamaya. So we have come to Vigyanamaya. Anyuantaraatma, Vigyanamaya. Huh? The intellect is the self. The Buddhist catches to See, this is what we are saying. And your Upanishad is saying this. Um, give a reason. Without you, the person, there is no thinker of thoughts. There is no operator of the sense organs. There is no one to say that I am alive. Remember all those earlier theories. Mind, sense organs, prana. No one to say I am this body. No one to say my son, my daughter. All of that depends on you the person. This, this karta and bhokta. This doer and uh, enjoyer or sufferer. This person. Without you, nothing will work. So you are the self. You the person are the self. This intellect is the self, this understanding, capacity to understand, which includes the ego, that is the self. And then what is the um, anubhava experience? Please show us, where do we feel this? We always feel, I am the doer, I am the enjoyer, I am enjoying, I am suffering. And many such experiences we have throughout the day. Because of this, we claim buddhi atma. The intellect is the self. The intellect here includes understanding, cognition, ego. and That is the self. And very, very reasonable. I think modern psychology would stop here. Modern cognitive psychology would say that this is the self. Yes, you're right. All right. And I'm also going to stop here. I'm going to do something slightly different here. Today, I'm going to stop and take a look at this particular school of Buddhist philosophy, a little bit about this. Why? Well, first of all, one reason is um, that this way, what what we are doing in Vedanta Sara, as I said, it's a very, um, very superficial look at the different schools of Indian philosophy. We're just lightly touching upon each and moving ahead. So far, we have looked at the Charvaka, so we are moving ahead, fine. But now we are entering into some very sophisticated and ancient schools of thought. So for example, the Yogachara Buddhists, whom we are dealing with now, we shall see. Vast school with a lot of major thinkers, lot of literature, philosophy, um, ancient traditions. And there are millions of people who actually practice this philosophy now. Uh, And you know them. They are, um, you know, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama and his followers. So this school of thought is one of the parts Two of them, Madhyamaka and Yoga Achara. So the modern Tibetan Buddhism is a synthesis of this this school and another school, whom we shall see later. So this is very sophisticated, very ancient, um, and very deep. And it is uh, not fair to just touch upon it and go on. We have we have seen what they are saying. Now we are going to dismiss it, and now we are going to go ahead. Instead of doing that, let's explore this school a little bit. Second reason why I'm stopping here is today is. Uh, Um, a little personal (coughs) so i myself have an interest in buddhism and uh, buddhist philosophy and last year at harvard i did study uh, to some depth two courses in buddhism one was the madhyamaka buddhism and another one was a general study of classical indian buddhism uh, at, at harvard so I always had this intention of doing a full course, giving a full course on Buddhist philosophy, and I had mentioned it earlier also. Um, so I had also mentioned it earlier that I would do it. I don't know when that will happen, but this is an occasion to uh, you know, inter- do a little bit of it at least, a small part of it. So that's another reason why I'm stopping today and taking a little diversion. Not necessary. If you normally teach Vedanta Sara, you would not do this, what I'm going to do today. It's a little uh, diversion. Uh, what do you call it? Taking the, we're taking the exit here. A little stop and, at the uh, gas station. Uh, so we're going to relax a little, take a look at the scenery and then go, and, go on our way. Okay. Um, so before we start, there was a comment here. Kishore Rajarya says, Buddhists deny Vedas. Why should they refer to and accept comments from Upanishad?" So, what do you think? I've mentioned it a num- number of times. Why are the Upanishads being quoted here? I just now I mentioned it, yeah. for two reasons. One is, that was the pattern of argument, not that the Buddhists would quote, generally, but this is the way um, arguments were presented traditionally. Shruti, Yukti, anubhuti. Why would Buddhists or Charvakas even? Even before this, we saw four Charvakas and they all quoted from the Upanishads, why? Um, so, one reason is in argument, you your argument will be powerful if you can quote from your op- opponent's scripture. See, your Upanishad is showing that body is Atma or intellect is Atma. So that is why they are quoting. Normally they would not quote. Of course, they are not interested. They do not accept uh, the Vedas or the Upanishads as source of knowledge, as Pramana. All right, should we start? Okay. So what I'm going to draw upon here, um, so hold on, uh, you can make keep writing the questions and comments. I'm going to speak at length for the next few minutes, and then we will see what discussion we can have. So what are we going to discuss here today, this particular school of Buddhism, which I'm going to take a look at today. And what I'm going to say today is based on mostly uh, what I have picked up from different books and, and uh, one course at harvard last year professor parimal patil's course on classical indian buddhism all right i have to share my screen with you because there's a lot of information which i'm going to dump on you very quickly so here goes so now a buddhist has made the entry so who, who is this buddhist and what are this what are the theories they hold and why are they saying that the intellect is atma buddhist philosophy the way if you if you see a Buddhist philosophy text, you'll see generally in ancient India, Buddhist philosophy was divided into four schools. Sotrantika, Vaibhashika, Yogachara vijnanavada and Madhyamaka Shunyavada. Now, these schools are related to the, the two main streams of Buddhism. We know from our school studies that Buddhism was Hinayana, Mahayana, the two main streams of Buddhism. Hinayana is not a good name, but Hinayana means lower. The correct name is Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism. So Mahayana Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism are the names of the religion. But their core philosophy are these, uh, these are the schools of philosophy. Just like Hinduism, in that Vaishnavism, for example, is the name of the religion. But Vedanta, Dvaita Vedanta, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, these are the names of the schools of philosophy. Similarly, these are the schools of philosophy. Now, this is oversimplified. In fact, the school of philosophy which we're going to take a look at today is this one, the Yoga Chara. Or the full name is Yoga Chara But this is a bit oversimplified. Let me um, show you a more um, let us say, comprehensive look at what Indian what Buddhist philosophy was in ancient India. This is a much more uh, representative chart of actual Buddhist philosophy. So starting with uh, Siddhartha Gautama Buddha about 2,500 years ago, from where his teachings were codified into the Sutta Pitaka. Uh, the, so Sutta Pitaka, Vinaya Pitaka and Abhidhamma Pitaka. The Abhidhamma Pitaka is where the philosophical teachings of Buddhism are there. And from there, all of Buddhist philosophy has developed slowly. Now you can see how complicated it is. You can see so so many schools of philosophy here. Now, so for example, if you want to teach Buddhist philosophy, uh, how would you design a course to teach this? So what we did in, uh, I can show you the path which we took uh, in uh, Professor Patil's class uh, in uh, classical Indian Buddhist philosophy. So in about 10 weeks time, 10, 12 weeks time, what we did was in the first week just an introduction was there and in the second week we went to this philosopher vasubandhu whom we shall see today so second and third weeks was vasubandhu and then the fourth week we went to uh, another book by vasubandhu fifth and uh, fifth week um, we went to dignaga this one then from there we went to nagarjuna here So you can see time wise we're going backward and forward. Um, Then from there, we studied Shantideva uh, here, who is 8th century. From there, we went back to Dignagra here. And then from there, we went to Dharmakirti in week nine and finally came to the last great Buddhist philosophers in India, this Gyanas, Srimitra, Ratnakirti and others. So this was the movement and this is a much better uh, actually representative uh, representation of the complexity of different schools of buddhist philosophy but back to our um, our topic today the yogachara buddhists so vasubandhu so what are we going to talk about today a little bit is this philosopher he was a monk in nalanda nalanda university Although originally they, it said that they had come from um, um, you know Gandhara, which is in which is the present modern Kandahar, I think in Afghanistan, now full of terrorists. But in those days, many many great uh, Buddhist philosophers they came from there. Many great uh, thinkers were there. So Vasubandhu and his brother Asanga, half brother Asanga, both were monks, both were great uh, Buddhist philosophers in Nalanda University. And uh, Vasubandhu himself is a, is a very big name in Buddhist philosophy. He lived about 400 years before Shankaracharya. So about um, maybe 800, 900 years after Buddha and 1600 years before our time. And uh, he uh, actually, at first, he belonged to the Vaibhashika school of Buddhist philosophy. And then he switched to the Sotrantika school. And finally, in his old age, he switched to Yogachara school. So he actually wore wore three hats and in many books, he has written many, many books. So you might get confused, what is he actually supporting? So you have to see a development of his thought. Uh, At first he was a follower of the Theravada, Hinayana school of Buddhism. But the story is that his half brother, uh, Asanga, who was also a great uh, Buddhist uh, teacher, uh, but he was a Mahayana teacher. He converted Vasubandhu to the Mahayana teachings. And so finally Vasubandhu became a great Mahayana philosopher and he, he wrote books on Yogachara. In fact, the earliest some of the earliest books of Yogachara, the school of philosophy, basically owes its emergence, let us say, to Vasubandhu. They, although there were earlier thinkers. Um, in fact, the earlier thinkers are a little mythological. It is said that Asanga, he was searching for the true teachings of the Buddha, and then he meditated, and he went to the Tushita heaven, one of the many heavens, where he met the, uh, the Bodhisattva Maitreya, who gave him the actual teachings of Buddha, which is um, now called Yoga Chava. So such stories are there. But uh, as far as historical figures are concerned, Asanga and Vasubandhu, Vasubandhu especially, is the origin of these, this school. Among Vasubandhu's many books, these two are very important for uh, Yogachara Buddhism, from which this particular school, which is says, intellect or, or mind or buddhi is the self, uh, they come from this, these two books. Bhimshatika, which, is, which simply means 20 verses, and Trimshika, which means 30 verses. So these are, all these were in Sanskrit. And it's interesting, many of these books were lost when Nalanda was destroyed and the Buddhism slowly dis- disappeared from India. Um, Nalanda was destroyed about 800 years after Vasubandhu. But um, when it was destroyed, all these books were destroyed also. But they had already been transmitted to Tibet, thanks to Padmasambhava and other great Atisha Dipankara and other great uh, Buddhist teachers. And in Tibet, they had been translated into Tibetan language. So many of these books were reconstructed into Sanskrit from Tibetan. I have seen the reconstructions. So there are this Sanskrit and English translations. And they'll give the original Tibetan, the reconstructed Sanskrit, and the translation of the uh, Sanskrit. So uh, so there's Vimshatika and Trimshika. Uh, and at Harvard, we had to study the original books. So those who did not know Sanskrit, they had to study the English translations of the Vimshatika. And uh, those, I knew Sanskrit and some other states. So we studied the original uh, things, uh, of uh, original writings of Vasubandhu. So what does he say? His uh, idea is that, Buddhism has undergone three turnings of the wheel. Dharma Chakra Pravartana. Dharma Chakra Pravartana the great teachings of the Buddha. Three turnings of the wheel. Uh, Three major movements have been there in Buddhist thought. The first was, of course, Buddha's teachings, where he taught about the four noble truths. There is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there is a release from suffering, and there is the way to be released from suffering. Suffering is dukkha. Cause of suffering, trishna or desire. Uh, Release from suffering, nirvana. And the way to get release from suffering, ashtanga marga. So this is Buddha's teaching. And he taught the truth about anatma, no self. No self. No self means what we think that is a self. I am this body and mind. He shows that they are are not the self. You cannot be the self. These are continuously changing. They are composite. There is no such thing as the atma in this body-mind. So that was the first turning of the view then uh, the second turning of the wheel was emphasized or brought to public knowledge by the great madhyamaka teacher nagarjuna who lived about 500 years after buddha and about 400 years before vasubandhu he emphasized shunyata um, so emptiness not only there is no self there is no world also the world is also empty what you think is that the world is there outside made of actual you know like changing but what real things are there outside There is a reality that is also not real. Neither the self is real nor the world is real. Sarvam Shunyam, um, to put it very broadly or uh, in general. So this, is, um, this, this was brought to, it was emphasized by Nagarjuna in about first century uh, CE. Now this led to a problem that, you know, people misunderstood this teaching and it went into nihilism that nothing exists uh, sarvam shunya means there is no reality at all but that was not buddha's teaching so a third turning of the wheel was necessary and that is this yogachara buddhism which uh, vasubandhu is propounding um, and there vasubandhu is saying we must return to experience it is true that uh, our sense of self self is false what we think as atma that is not true that's not correct we think that there's an external world really out there, a real stable world. That's also not true. It's empty, shunya. But what is true is that there is experience. We are experiencing the world, and that is due to consciousness. And consciousness is true. Yeah. So, consciousness is the truth of consciousness, reality of consciousness only, that is emphasized in the third turning of the wheel of dharma, dharma chakra pravartana. So, um, First turning, second turning, and third turning of the wheel, these are important developments in Buddhist thought. Remember, they all claim, all of these turnings are actually due to the Buddha. Buddha has given all these teachings, but they have been emphasized at different times. It has become, it has been developed later on. But all the ideas are from Buddha. That is the claim. Um, One just point I'll make uh, here, is this first turning, This is where the Hinayana or Theravada Buddhism stops. This is what Theravada Buddhists in Burma or Thailand or Sri Lanka, um, then uh, Vietnam, uh, they accept this as the uh, the authentic teachings of Buddha. And the later ones they do not accept. And the Mahayana teachings, including Tibetan Buddhism, uh, they accept all three, first turning, second turning and third turning now so what does yoga say so there's a the name these are all different names they all mean the same school yoga why is it called yoga nobody knows uh, did they practice a lot of yoga a lot of meditation maybe but why specifically probably all of them meditated why only yoga so the name is not very clear why they, these this school is called yoga another name is vijanavada and this is more clear because they say that the self is vigyana. The only reality is consciousness or mind. Another name also very clear, Chittamatra, matra, mind only. In English, this school is called mind only school. What do they say? What exists is in mind only. Whatever we experience is the world is in mind. So when you are experiencing a book, when I am seeing a book, our common sense idea is, here is a book. And I am am seeing it and I'm thinking about it. There is a book outside and there is a book in my mind, which I'm thinking about. Yogachara says, Vasubandhu says, no, 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 there is no book outside. There's no world outside. There's no such thing as outside itself. Everything is in your mind only. Everything is uh, is thought, is perception, is awareness. uh, And everything exists in the mind only. External objects do not exist. What do I mean by external objects? Mind independent objects. So mind-independent objects do not exist. We think that this world is there, independent of our mind. And there is snow outside. There is There are cars buried under snow outside. I'm thinking so. No, it is only in your mind. There is no outside. There is no car. There is no snow. Nothing. These are just thoughts, perceptions in the mind. This body, body is also in the mind. Not that the mind is in the body. Only thing that exists is mind. Um, those who are trained in philosophy will immediately say this is idealism. Idealism in the sense that mind only exists, thoughts only exist, ideas only exist, and there is no external world apart from thoughts or ideas. In Western philosophy, this uh, is uh, traced back to Bishop Berkeley, after whom Berkeley, the city, and the university is named Berkeley. So Bishop Berkeley is is the Western philosopher associated with what is called subjective idealism. But more than 1,200 years before him, uh, 1,100 years before him, um, Vasubandhu in Nalanda University, and given a very thorough um, argument and um, you know, literature for subjective idealism from Buddhist point of view. So what exists? Only consciousness. But what kind of consciousness? Don't immediately jump to Vedantic idea, like satchidananda, pure consciousness, infinite. No, no, no. This is stream of consciousness, flashes of consciousness. So you are experiencing a book, one flash of consciousness. You hear a sound, another flash of consciousness. You taste um, uh, coffee, another flash of consciousness, and so on. A Series of flashes of consciousness are existing. So nowadays in literature, this has become a well-known term, stream of consciousness. But this idea, uh, again, 1100, 1200 years ago, Basubandhu, uh, and even before him, That the only reality is stream of consciousness. How many streams of consciousness are there? There are many, many such streams of consciousness, many such mind streams. Each one of us separate mind stream. So what does Buddhism do? These mind streams are polluted. There are many kinds of negative thoughts, unhappy thoughts, suffering is going on. So Buddhism purifies these mind streams until only it becomes a stream of pure consciousness. That is free of suffering and that is nirvana. This is the basic idea. So in his book, Vimshatika, um, which we struggled with, I remember, uh, to do assignments, uh, studying this and then making notes about it and writing essays about it. So what does he say? It's only 20 verses, but on that Vasubandhu has written a commentary, Vimshatika Vritti, which he explains what it means. So in that, basically he says... That in Mahayana Buddhism, remember, he changed from the Hinayana Theravada to Mahayana. So he says in Mahayana Buddhism, reality is consciousness only. And the words he uses for consciousness only is Vigyapti Matra. Literally, this is uh, what he says in Sanskrit. In Mahayana Buddhism, reality is Vigyapti Matra. I'm sort of slightly paraphrasing. Then, very clearly, he says, that Chitta, Manas, Buddhi, Chit. All are synonymous. Immediately you will see the difference with Advaita Vedanta. We have been studying this in Vedanta Sara, definition of chitta, definition of manas, definition of buddhi. None of these are pure consciousness. These are all activities of what? Of antakkarana, of the inner instrument. They are part of the manomaya kosha or vijnanamaya kosha. But Vasubandhu does not distinguish between them. For him, all that is going on inside Thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, they're all part of the same stream, and that is the only reality. He is not, this is very important for Advaita Vedanta, he is not distinguishing between mind and consciousness. That is the thing. All right, so what has he said? His argument is this there are no external objects. Why not? So, in the beginning of that book, Vimshatika, the first seven verses, he says external objects are not necessary to explain experience. See, everybody has to explain experience. Uh, if I'm seeing chairs and table and people and computer, whatever your philosophy is, you have to explain it. Um, uh, Charvaka will say those are the only things which are there. What you see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, that's real. Advaita Vedanta will say they are all names and forms projected by Maya. Only Satchidananda is real. What does Vasubandhu say? These are all stream of consciousness. These are flashes of consciousness, different instances of consciousness or thoughts. Um, and you don't need, you're seeing a computer. There's no need, actually don't think that there is a e- computer external apart from your thought, apart from your perception. Now there are objections. So these are, I'm just summarizing what he has said. Three objections are taken up. Objections by whom? Those who say, no, no, there is, there are, there is a real world. What are you saying? World is there. My house is there. My car is there. My body is there. What are you saying? It is all in the mind. So, three objections I'm saying. Three kinds of objections. One is spatio-temporal location. Which means, how do you explain that this world is spread out before me unless there are external objects, there is space and time? If everything is in the mind, then why does it appear that there is space? Some objects are near, some are far. New York is here, um, Los Angeles is on the other side of the country, and India is far away. Time, uh, space difference, time difference. Certain things are in the past, certain are present, certain will be in the future. All these are possible only when there are external things. How are you saying that it's all in the mind? Uh, Second, objection, shared objects. All of us are experiencing the same realities only because there is a reality outside our minds that all our minds can share the same reality. If it's all in the mind uh, we would all see different things third so these are our typical objections against idealism and uh, see more than 1200 years ago people 1100 years ago people were debating these things efficacy things work external things work things in the mind don't work uh, so and then he gives answers to this actually we have read Gaudapada, you know mandukya karika he would give only one answer to all of them Compare it with the dream. All of these objections will be answered in the dream. But Vasubandhu, who was about two, three hundred years before Gaudapada, actually uses multiple examples and multiple arguments to answer these questions. So one argument he uses is dreams. He says that um, in dreams also, you see human beings are there, gardens are there, fountains are there, there is movement, there is action. There is space, some things appear to be near, some things appear to be far. There is time, some things happened earlier, some things will happen later, some things are present. Spatio-temporal location is there in a dream also. So in in the mind also, there's exactly the same thing can appear. It does not require external objects. Second objection, how are we all uh, sharing the same kind of um, uh, shared objects? Of course, dream is the best example. In dreams also you see many, um, many people and they are all sharing the uh, same uh, shared reality. And today virtual reality is there where there is nothing, there is a common reality which does not exist in the physical world, but different people can share the same reality. Um, but these are subtly different examples. Vasubandhu gives a peculiar example it seems unnecessarily complicated, but I'll tell you why he does that. What is his example? Remember, what is the objection? That uh, we may see a shared object. All of us may see something, and yet it is only in the mind. Uh, that is what Vasubandhu wants to prove. The objection is, if you're all seeing something, it must be outside the mind. That's why all different people are seeing the same thing. Uh, Vasubandhu says, no. I can show you an example where different minds are seeing the same thing and yet it is in their mind. It's not actually there outside. So the example he gives is complicated. He says, so hell, there are beings, there is hell. There are multiple hells. There is hell. There are beings suffering in hell because of their past karma. And remember, they're all minds. So the minds are experiencing suffering in hell. And in hell, there are demons. And the job of these demons is to make us suffer. If we are in hell, all the people in hell have to be tortured because of their past karma. So there must be somebody to torture. So the torturers are these demons. So the demons are torturing the people who are in, the unfortunate people who are in hell. Now he raises a question These demons, um, they are there. Why should they be in hell? Because they have not done anything bad. Only people who have done something bad should be in hell and yet these demons, it's their job to torture people, so they have to be (laughs) in hell. So obviously they don't deserve to be in hell, yet they appear to be in hell, so they must be a shared imagination of those who are in hell. It's a little convoluted. Therefore, all those people who are in hell, they are experiencing these terrible demons who are torturing them? And he gives a very vivid description of those demons. Very science science fiction type of description. They're like mountains of steel rushing through the air and showering arrows at you. So that's that's so uh, you know sci-fi today. So these demons, they are not actually there because they don't deserve to be there in hell. And yet, all those people in hell are experiencing those demons, are being tortured by them. So there must be a shared hallucination of all those people in hell. Therefore. Something can be shared and yet be only in the mind. That is the um, example he gives. Now you might say, why such a complicated example? Why not? I was just thinking about it. Uh, why not uh, Advaita Vedanta example? Our dreams. In our dreams, there are, um, we are all there. We are all ha- enjoying a cup of coffee. Um, and so all of us. You know, I, I am there, my friends are there, we're sitting and so there is the coffee cup and, and we are all drinking coffee. And so there's a, there's a shared reality. Nobody says it's only in your head. The problem is that kind of uh, example will not work for Vasubandhu. It works for Advaita Vedanta. Why? Advaita Vedanta wants an example which will show there is one consciousness in which a variety can appear. And there can even be a sort of simulation of a shared reality, but behind it is one consciousness. After all, what is a dream? When we wake up, when we wake up from a dream, all the people in the dream, all those supposed subjects in the dream are nothing other than the imagination of my one mind. But that will not do for Vasubandhu because he wants there to be different minds who share a common uh, imagination. Leave it at that. If you have uh, doubts about it, you can ask me later. Another example is efficacy, Uh, how, if it's all in the mind, how do things work? Um, He says things work, he gives examples of dreams, you know, if you have a dream and you wake up and you are, it has an effect on your waking uh, experience also, or a sleepwalking. Sleepwalking is a modern example, he didn't give the example of sleepwalking. Um, Then he goes on to consider if there are no external things, problem. Buddha himself spoke of external things. So there are monks and uh, there are lay people and there are cities and there are people who are suffering. All these things Buddha spoke about. So why did he speak about it if there are no external things? And his answer is a classic Buddhist and similar thing which we do in Advaita Vedanta. There are two levels of truth. The Buddha spoke at two levels of truth. There's an ultimate reality which he wanted to convey, which is that it's only consciousness only, but, to convey it, you need to speak in the, in the language uh, in terms which ordinary people will understand. So his, his answer is it's pedagogical, it's, it's methodological. Buddha spoke about as if external objects exist so that we can understand. It is a kindness to us, it's a skillful way of teaching. If you only said there's only consciousness, nobody would understand. This is just like in Advaita Vedanta, if you say, There's all Maya and Brahman is the only reality. Then why does Shankaracharya, or even the Upanishads, why do they talk as if there are things in the world? There's a world, there are people. It's because otherwise you cannot teach. Then uh, he goes on. So his approach is very interesting, Vasubandhu. His goal is to prove there are no external objects. It's all in the mind. Uh, There is only consciousness. Vigyamthi matra. So the way he does it is, First, he shows just mind only can explain this world, as he just showed. Whatever your objections are, he can answer. There's no need to talk about external objects. Only through thought and our you know, conscious experiences, that's enough to explain the external our experience. That there's no need for any external world. The second move he makes in the Vimshatika is that... Um, your whole theory of an external world is incoherent he says suppose you say there are external objects what are they made of so the physics of that time there were different kinds of theories one was his main target was the uh, his erstwhile you know uh, comrades the sautrantika and vaibhashika philosophers who analyzed all of experience into uh, atomic facts, which they call dharmas. They had a list of, I think, 75 dharmas or something. Or the Nyaya Vaisheshika philosophers, the Hindu philosophers, Nyaya Vaisheshika philosophers, who said there are, there is an external world and all physical things are made of atoms. What are atoms? Vasubandhu asks. Atoms are the smallest pot- possible uh, entity. What do you mean by smallest possible entity, which cannot be further partitioned? Uh, which cannot be further divided. What cannot be further divided? That which has no parts. So external, the the world is made of atoms which are partless entities, uh, the tiny and partless entities. He says this is an incoherent theory. If atoms are tiny and partless, then um, you can't perceive them. The answer would be no, no, we don't say that things are made of one atom. Many atoms together, they make a cup or a table or a person and then you can perceive but if it's a it's a tiny thing imperce- imperceptible even an aggregate of such atoms would still be have have no size and would not be perceptible for many reasons it's like the you know the thought we had when we all learned euclidean geometry that a line segment is made of uh, innumerable um, like points a point has something that has no extension no breadth no length how can something without no length and no breadth make a line segment which has length? Similarly, how can atoms which have no no dimensions at all, even if you combine large numbers of such atoms, how can it make um, something which has size? And then he says, even combination of atoms is not possible. Uh, Vasubandhu says, how can you combine atoms? Combination means what? Um, different entities will come together, they'll come in contact, but to c- have contact, you must have parts, because one part of one entity will come in contact with one part of the other entity, you know, like we I, I was thinking we had these diagrams of uh, molecules, organic molecules which we learned in school. So one atom, and then the other atoms and how they, they are uh, connected to each other, but it the diagrams you will see they have sides. So uh, if it's a thing has no sides, how will multiple atoms come in contact? What will they come in contact with? If, if it has no part to come in contact with. And if it is partless, then as many atoms as you put together, it will still remain partless. Um, and there are other objections. This is, might sound very simplistic, but very interesting. He says, um, How can one atom, how can atoms block light, for example, solid? solid objects block light, but atoms cannot block anything, any light, because to block something, you know, you are on one side, on the other side, uh, light is coming, so the atom will, uh, atoms will prevent light from coming to you, but that means atoms have a back and have a front. That means atoms have sides. If atoms have sides, then they have parts, and they, then again that is divisible. If they are partless, they do not have a front or a back, how can they block something? How can shade be created? How can opaque objects be created? And so on. Basically his move is to show, you are saying external objects are there. Well, tell me what are these external objects made of? And then he criticizes the physics of that time. Um, There are problems he takes up. So suppose there are only minds, only minds are there. Um, Then some questions will arise. That uh, well, Vasubandhu, if there are only minds, how do you know there are other minds? Only what you can know, only your own mind. What, how do you know other minds are there? Other objects you're dismissing, but other minds are there. How will you know? Second big problem will be how will you distinguish between um, truth and falsity, between the real and the unreal? We can distinguish now. If I imagine there is something, suppose I imagine a cookie in my mind and I see a cookie outside, will I say there are two cookies? One in the mind, one outside? If everything is in the mind, you can say that there are two cookies. Um, But when we say there are external objects, I say external cookie is the real cookie, and my imagined cookie is not a real cookie, and therefore there's a difference between real and unreal. This difference will be raised if you just say everything is in the mind. And then finally, the question of moral responsibility one can murder a person in the mind, it's not immoral, it's not a sin. Uh, You cannot be prosecuted for it. But if everything is in the mind, then actually um, killing somebody or something outside and imagining that in the mind, it will become equal. Because according to you, everything is in the mind, everything is imagination. How will there be moral responsibility? What is right and wrong? So Vasubandhu gives answers to that. Very quickly, I'll just say what he says and I will not go into the details. Um, So, other minds, Masubandhu says, yes, there are other minds. He has to do this. Um, I mean, so, for example, the Buddha taught um, nirvana and liberation from sorrow. So, therefore, there must be some people who are in bondage, some people who need liberation. Uh, So, it is taking into account other minds. But that's not an argument. I mean, that's just the Buddha taught. From his perspective, it's an argument. The Buddha taught, and it's clearly that there are multiple minds. But he gives some argument also. The argument is that my experiences are not enough. Uh, um, my experiences are so varied that only the happenings, the cause, cause and effect of one mind is not enough to explain it. Um, I did not, I'll go outside and suddenly see there is a package from Amazon. Now, I did not imagine it. I suddenly came upon it. So obviously some other activity has been going on outside my own mind maybe. So there are, so that, that kind of activity is going on in other minds. So if multiple minds are there, how is it that they are sharing the same experience? He says, because they have shared karma. They have shared karma. That's why they are sharing the same experience. Isn't that too much to think that um, say right now we have so many people here and we have all, all, all gathered together for this class. Do we all have the shared karma of imagining the same class in our each of our minds? Not impossible. Suppose um, people go to a film hall, hundreds of people, thousands of people in the cinema hall. All of it is fiction, but they're all enjoying the same fiction or read a storybook, millions of children reading Harry Potter. So they are all having the same fictional experience in their minds, shared. Um, Distinction between real and unreal. Uh, He says, his answer is very interesting. He says, I don't care because ultimately all your so-called real, unreal, your real cookie outside and unreal cookie in the mind, they're both unreal. Ultimate reality is consciousness only. So (laughs) his point is very interesting. He bites the bullet there. Moral responsibility, he says, yes. There's a difference, the answer is in intensity. What is seems to be inside is less intense, what seems to be outside external is more intense. And so the moral effect of the karma of doing something actually outside will be much stronger than just imagining it so-called in your, in your mind. Although both are ultimately in the mind only. Um, he goes on in the trimshika, to talk about three natures. Every entity in the universe has three natures. One is appearance, false. He calls it parikalpita swabhava, three swabhava, three natures, every entity. So this, uh, this uh, say uh, um, an apple, it's an apple, it's sweet, it's red and um, and juicy and crisp and ripe. All of these are um, imposed by my thinking upon it. Parikalpita Svabhava. Deeper than that, more real than that, is the Paratantra Svabhava. That every entity, this comes from the Buddhist idea of dependent origination. The um, All things are, arise depending on causes and conditions. So it's many causes and conditions have come together to give you the appearance of this apple. But even that is also not the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is what he calls parinishpanna swabhava, the absolute nature of a thing, which everything has, and that is nothing other than consciousness. So it's consciousness appearing as the paratantra swabhava, and finally appearing as this fabricated parikalpita swabhava. Parikalpita means imagined. Imagined by whom? By us. What's it really? It's just causes and conditions, um, which are, which have come to, uh, together. Uh, what is the dependent origination what is the buddhist term for it um the uh, I, I, I forget very important so um and even if you investigate that further you will end up with the parinishpanna swabhava which is consciousness okay sounds a lot like advaita vedanta is it like advaita vedanta no here the yogachara buddhist vasubandhu is not distinguishing between um, the movements of the mind the vrittis of the mind and consciousness see according to advaita vedanta pure consciousness and because of maya this mind appears pure consciousness is reflected in the mind as chidabhasa the mind is continuously moving vrittis in the mind are coming and going very fast And the reflected consciousness is illumining each Vritti as it comes and goes, the flashes. And this series of flashes is what Vasubandhu calls the Atma. He's not at all talking about the pure consciousness. It is like, you look at your face in the mirror. So your original face is there, which you're not seeing directly. But what you're seeing is the mirror and the reflected face. Your original face is like pure consciousness. The mirror is like the mind and um, the, a reflected face is like reflected consciousness. Now imagine this mirror is 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 unstable. It is moving continuously. So it's giving like, it's flickering. Now your face there also will, will tend to flicker in the mirror. This series of flickering faces is what Yogachara Buddhism or Vasubandhu calls the self. Uh, this is the self. There is no self other than this. Okay, so this is their position. Is it Advaita Vedanta? No. Advaita Vedanta is saying that the real self is not the mirror, real self is not the reflected face, the real self is the original face, which uh, Yogacharya is not talking about. Shankaracharya, in his Brahma Sutra, Bhashya, and other places also, strongly attacked Yogachara Buddhism. This Yogachara vijnanavada Buddhism, Shankaracharya strongly attacks it. Even before Shankaracharya, Kumarila Bhatta, a great Mimamsa philosopher, uh, in his uh, essay, it's part of a larger book, um, in, in his essay, uh, Niralambana Vada, Niralambana Vada, uh, where he examines that all cognitions are there without any external support, without any external object, we are only having these experiences in the mind. Is this a valid uh, theory? So he, exp- he examines it and very forensically, he takes apart Vasubandhu's arguments. He just tears it apart. So there are many, many uh, objections to this kind of thinking that the world is in my mind. And in each, we are all different minds only. There are no external objects, only in the mind. This thing is attacked by Kumarila Bhatta and later on by Shankaracharya. He says, we are not saying that. Advaita Vedanta says, clearly there are minds and bodies and external world. People are surprised. They thought uh, Shankaracharya would support this. No. This is very different from Advaita Vedanta. It seems similar. That's why it's important to distinguish it. Advaita Vedanta, as we saw in Vedanta Sara, after Maya, you know, the five subtle elements have been produced, five gross elements have been produced. By the combination of the subtle elements, minds have been produced. By the combination of the gross elements, bodies and external worlds have been produced. They are interacting. There are many bodies. There are many minds. There is an external world. The minds are experiencing the external world. All of this is going on and this is all nothing but Maya and under, underlying Maya is the ultimate reality, Satchidananda. That is what Advaita Vedanta is saying. While Vasubandhu is saying those minds are the reality and there is no external world. That is all in those minds. Again, so is this how it stands? If you push it further, I will not go in, in deeper into this. Actually, if you ask Tibetan Buddhists who practice today, the mind-only philosophy of uh, Buddhism, they will say, no, no, this is also not uh, an accurate reading of of, uh, mind-only Buddhism. If you go deeper, what Tibetan Buddhism today says is, is they have a synthesis of Madhyamaka Buddhism, which we will see in the next class, and this mind-only Buddhism, and the synthesis is very close to what Advaita Vedanta is saying. It is uh, almost the same thing. It's not saying that these thoughts are the ultimate reality. So dare it, uh, I'll stop there. And let's see what the reactions are. And we can take a few questions. Okay. What is the difference between anubhuti and anubhavam? Same thing, experience. Shesha is asking, sometimes I feel that I'm experiencing my experience, experiencing the understanding. Is that experience of experience the self, Maharaj? Should I travel deep into that, to realize this? No. That experience of experiencing, that is basically what you call introspection. Um, in Nyaya philosophy has uh, a term for it. They call it anubhavasaya. Um, you have an experience and you reflect back upon it. I, I see a book and then I know that I see a book. So this is reflecting back upon our experience. That's also not the self. That's the mind thinking about another ex- content of the mind. You have a perception, direct perception. Then you use the mind to think about that direct perception. Both are lit up by the self. The self is not an object. The, how do you know? Notice. I experience my own understanding. I am reflecting back upon my own understanding. Is that also an object of your experience? Yes, it is. In that case, it's not the self. It's not Atman. Uh, Ram Gopal asked, why is the second turning of the wheel, Dharma Chakra Pravartana, necessary, Shunyata? Uh, Because um, suffering will not be extinguished until you realize there is no external world. So remember, the first turning of the wheel, self is not this stable, permanent entity we took it to be, this body-mind. That was dissolved by the Buddha. No self-teaching. But dissolved into what? So the early Abhidhamma philosophers, which is what Vasubandhu was first following before his brother Asanga changed his mind into Mahayana. He was first following those teachings that if you analyze carefully our experiences, they'll be reduced to what? Actually, Wittgenstein in 20th century, he called atomic facts. um, Bursts of color, of sensation, of, uh, you know, like the minimum analyzed facts. And these Abhidhamma philosophers, they made a list of some 72 or 75. 75, they, they call them dharmas. Dharmas are like atoms, but even finer than atoms. They are like the atoms of our experience. So, do those exist? You say, yeah, those exist, and they are momentary, coming and disappearing, fleeting dharmas. But Nagarjuna showed those are also empty; they are not real, real themselves. So that's why shunyata is very necessary. Emptiness is necessary. Ramya says, how do they account for deep sleep? We will see, and that um, we'll see that next time. Deep sleep is a big problem for um, the Vagana Deepa is asking, how do the teachings of Buddhism influence how to meditate, and different from Vedantic meditation? Big difference. So a Buddhist meditation, for example, uh, would would be more of an awareness meditation. you see that in Vipassana um, where you watch the movements. If it's a series of movements of the mind, what would you have to do then? To purify that series, you would have to detach yourself from the ups and downs, from the negative thoughts, uh, the lusts and passions in that series, you have to watch. And um, so Vipassana, for example, mindfulness meditation is an outcome of this kind of philosophy. Shravan is asking, Buddha and other first generation were born Hindu, what was the reason for this completely new religion to emerge in a country which had a very established religion, Hinduism? Hinduism, by this you mean the Vedic Hinduism. But remember, there were many, many teachers at that time. Um, this very clearly defined idea we have Hinduism versus other religions, that was not there. It was just religion, dharma. It was not clearly distinguished. There are other religions, you know, there were no senses. Are you a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Jain? Um, so there was all these teachers who were there and teaching at the same time. During Buddha's time, the discussions itself, you see, multiple teachers are there, including materialists are also. Um, Sankhya teachers were there. Yoga teachers were there. So one reason which is given for the emergence of Buddhism is the Buddha's rejection of the Karma Kanda of the Vedas. That uh, One is the Buddha's great heart. He, um, he could not bear he so much animal sacrifice in the name of religion, so much ritualism. He rejected all of that. Swami Vivekananda in fact was very clear that what the Buddha taught was the pristine religion of the Upanishads. Modern scholars may not accept this, but truly the more deeper you go, especially when you study, I have seen, this is what I studied at Harvard last year and also Madhyamaka Buddhism, the Tibetan variety of Buddhism. It comes very close to Advaita Vedanta. So if this is what the Buddha taught or at least implied, then it's not very different from uh, Advaita. Um, In fact, one interesting thing I'll tell you, I didn't mention, Vasubandhu, you'll be surprised to know at the end of the Vimshatika, he says, then what is the result of all of this? He says, by this way, the Buddhas realize the true Atma. He uses the word Atma. Immediately modern scholars are, I'm seeing this uh, book by Amber Carpenter, who is a professor here. So immediately she tr- jumps in to clarify, oh, is this the Brahminical self, Atma of Hinduism? No, 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 this is something different, doesn't matter. But <laughs> Vasubandhu's o- own word, by this the has come to an understanding of Atma, the reality of the Atma. But what is that reality of the Atma? It is consciousness only. But what is that consciousness only? There Vasubandhu is, seems to be different from Advaita Vedanta. Rama is asking, "What is the difference between mind-only school and Ristishristi Vada or Advaita?" Ah, I was hoping nobody would ask this. Not much. <laughs> Only thing could be that the consciousness in Ristishristi Vada and the consciousness that the mind-only school is asking about is talking about. These are two different conceptions of consciousness. But reality being in the mind in drishti vada and reality being in um, the mind in Yogachara, not very different. Though we insist that they are different, but they're actually not all that different. There are subtle shades of difference. You should ask this question. We are going to have a very interesting talk on drishti vada. I've invited Professor Timal Sina, who is an authority in this subject. He's going to give a talk to all of us uh, on drishti vada. It's a very radical, advanced form of Advaita next month. But this question you can ask him. Rick Archer says, the only explanation of intersubjective agreement that makes sense to me is the existence of a cosmic mind. That is true. That gives rise to the universe. And it is what it is, however we we may or may not experience it. True. Only thing is because they're committed non-theists, the Buddhists, they don't want to commit themselves to any kind of cosmic being. So they will say there are multiple mind streams, but one cosmic mind stream of which all these minds are part, like the Vedanta talks about the Hiranyagarbha, that they don't want to commit themselves to. The moment you commit, themselves, commit yourself to a cosmic mind, then why not a cosmic self which becomes God? So poor Vasubandhu, he has been driven to accepting Atma, now you want him to accept Ishwar also. Then where is Buddhism left? Rick says, if an ant, Pratitya Samutpada, yes, I keep forgetting this term. Most important term in Buddhism, if you want to learn Buddhist philosophy, dependent origination, Pratitya Samutpada, which, which means dependent origination. It simply means causes and conditions. This arising that arises, this not arising that will not arise. Rick says, if an ant, a bird, or a dog and a person all perceive the same tree, do they have shared karma? Yes. This logic, including the karma-free demons in hell, seems far-fetched and overcomplicated. Simplicity rules. It is true. I would agree with you. There are problems with this this halfway house solution, which Vasubandhu is proposing here. Ramgopal says, how does Vasubandhu's theories correspond with Buddha's second sermon on the not-self? I don't remember second sermon on the not-self, but they would all claim first turning, second turning, and third turning of the wheel. Um, The Madhyamakas and the Vijnanavadis, they all claim that the original teachings are all from Buddha. And the Buddha implied this, or he taught this. the Prajnaparamita Sutras were given later. Um, Though they were given by Buddha, they were not revealed to the masses because the masses were not ready for them. And they came later for example nagarjuna got his uh, uh, ideas from the nagas who had kept the teachings of the buddha hidden so many centuries until humanity was ready for it so that is the uh, storyline of the mahayanists and the theravadin if you ask them they'll say these are just made up by the mahayanists these are not the teachings of buddha they accept only the first turning how is Pratyabhigya memory explained in the Yogachara model? Yes, memory uh, is a problem for all Buddhists, but uh, what they will say is each instant of cognition arising and then disappearing leaves a trace in the next instant. And this trace is what is generating memory. But this is a weak point. This is where the Kashmir Shaivas enter to demonstrate the existence of Atma based on memory-based argument. Um, Rame says, "Pranams on this auspicious occasion." Okay, so it's in India. It's um, the fourth. So I'm Vivekananda's birthday. Yes. So it's here. It's still one day. We are still behind. Then Shiva Priya is asking, "Deep sleep experience is not under conscious control. Waking experience, it's been conscious control too." Rama is asking, "What is meant by pure stream of consciousness?" So, instant um, a series of consciousness instances, uh, instant consciousness, uh, vijñana dhara uh, without any negativity associated with it. So, each consciousness burst has a content. So, I have, I have a burst of consciousness, and the content is this book. Next, the content is maybe a burst of pain. Another, maybe a burst of desire. Now, if this con- this consciousness stream is uh, there, but without these negative contaminations, that is pure. Regarding Krishnamurti says, regarding Buddhism, raising a separate teaching compared to Hinduism, most of what is for conventional Hinduism is so different even from Vedanta. Modern Hindus would be shocked by many ideas of Advaita, that is true. But I will say this much, Advaita Vedanta, uh, and in general Vedanta, is non-destructive so, in Advaita Vedanta, you don't reject what has gone. Do you reject ritualism? Do you reject bath in the Ganga? Do you reject uh, Tita Yatra pilgrimages? Do you reject worship of images? Do you reject Bhakti? No, none of it. All of it is harmonized as helpful. Uh, so, there's one way I get a wonderful insight and everything else I throw out before it. That's one way of doing religion. So, some, some uh, religions have done that. But in Hinduism in general, Vedanta and Hinduism in general, all the preceding stages are kept. Nothing is rejected. You build upon it. You may relegate it to a lower level, uh, but uh, it is not rejected as as wrong or unhelpful. Okay, so I see hands up, Dimitri. Uh,
1: Good evening, Swamiji. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about the proof. Uh, like isn't it like in order to prove something one to have, one needs to have a first hand experience of whatever it is yes. and uh, isn't it then whether we go through the model of a first person where you know mind only with a consciousness and everything being imagined in the mind or the model of uh, samsara where you know the universe is created yet behind it it's all consciousness and you're sort of Uh, plugged in through the individual jiva, or any other model, ultimately, there is no way to prove one or another, because as a first person, as your own, as kind of your first person experience, the only thing you can experience is, you know, multitude of objects. But you cannot prove that, uh, let's say, other people have consciousness, and therefore, uh, it is the same consciousness being reflected in multiple people that you interact, Uh, at the end of the day, like, yes, there are great theories, they might be true, because I have no way to disprove it, nor I have a way to actually prove it uh, to be true. The only thing that is available to me is this and nothing else. That's true, that's true. And um, see,
0: in all of this, experience is common. We are all experiencing something. Now, all these theories, these philosophies, they have to build on this experience. Nobody can deny this experience. What they are all arguing is, they are all like, um, you know, waiting for your approval, vying for your approval. Look, I'm going to give you a better explanation of your experience. So, the Nyaya Vaisheshika school will say, a better explanation of your experience is, there are objects in the world. When you see an apple out there, that's a real thing existing apart from your mind. Your, um, but I cannot, I cannot prove that, right? You uh, cannot prove it. See, ultimately, what is the only thing that can be proved in a radical sense? Consciousness can prove only consciousness itself. Yes. Nothing else. Exactly. Right? So, yeah, and that's what Advaita Vedanta builds upon. All the rest... They give some importance to the object and uh, they try to prove to a greater or lesser degree. Some will say there's an external object and in your mind and of course you have awareness. But you notice one thing. If you very clearly distinguish awareness or consciousness from mind and object, then you begin to see it only that awareness or consciousness is the only reality possible. Uh, That is the great insight of Advaita Vedanta. All these other theories, you will notice, at some point or the other, they fail to distinguish between awareness and mind. Vasubandhu, for example, for all his idealism, uh, this subjective idealism, he is not clearly distinguishing between uh, consciousness and mind, and he ends up by saying that the intellect is the self, or the series of uh, conscious, uh, you know, the cognitions is the self. Um, um, a materialist goes further cannot distinguish even the mind from the object. It's a mind is nothing but the brain. So it's completely objective and materialistic. It's only when you clearly distinguish consciousness from everything else, then you're sort of inevitably led to an Advaitic position and that to a very Gaudapadian position. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Rama has her hand up.
1: Uh, Swamiji, just a follow-up question on the pure stream of consciousness that I uh, put in the chat. Uh, so, uh, in, in Advaita, when we say that in an experience, we have consciousness and object, and when we remove the object, pure consciousness remains. But here, you said we remove the negativity. So, by, uh, in, by pure stream of consciousness here, do we mean that just remove the pain and suffering? It's yes. still with the content and objects
0: in the... No, there will be no kleshas. Uh, they, they have an idea about impurities which produce kleshas. And so all that will go away and only consciousness... Will it. if, if it's not very particularly very clear to me also. But one thing, in Advaita Vedanta, uh, it's not that when you remove the object, pure consciousness remains. If you remove the object, even mentally, if, you re- if in your understanding you remove the object, you are able to appreciate what pure consciousness is. Is. But even when the object is there, it's still pure consciousness only. That same pure consciousness right. alone right. is illumining the object. The object right. has no second existence apart from pure consciousness. Yeah. Arjun has his hand up. Shun Rato. Maharaj Pranam, just one quick question. Is experience possible without mind mediating that experience? No. One where you can say one, one example, a little radical example of an experience without the mind would be deep sleep. If you call it experience at all. But there also kind of mind is not dead. It's still there. It's just inactive, right? Is right. that? Oh, right. Okay. Thank you, Ma. Right. Anubhuti, experience, Anubhava, is basically two things. Consciousness plus Vritti. Vritti means an activity of the mind. So this is what gives anubhava. And if you just keep it at these two and give equal reality to both, you'll end up with sankhya. Prakriti and Purusha and Prakriti. Consciousness and uh, matter. The most sophisticated, the final, the the cutting edge of matter is the vritti of the mind. And that is illumined by consciousness. That is sankhya. But Advaita Vedanta says even the vritti of the mind, the mind, its vrittis, all of those are nothing but products of Maya. And Maya is nothing other than consciousness. So all of that which consciousness experiences is not other than consciousness. they are appearances or superimpositions on consciousness. That was the uh, uh, Adhyasa Bharshi of Shankaracharya. Thank you, uh, Maharaj. Anuradha, we'll, we'll conclude with Anuradha. Yeah, Anuradha, go ahead.
1: With all this hearing, Maharaj, It comes to me that mantra, Pratibodha Viditam Matam.
0: Mm. Right. Pratibodha Viditam Matam is in the Keno Upanishad. In every instant of, in every cognition, you recognize that pure consciousness, and that is enlightenment. Now, Pratibodha, if you take that Pratibodha itself to be the reality, There is nothing else outside that bodha. That means that every flash of cognition, the series of flashes of cognition are the only reality that there is. That is Vasubandhu. But what Advaita Vedanta is saying is that in that series of flashes of cognition, it's there. We are all continuously having it. There's no doubt about it. In that, you must recognize that um, it is in one awareness. All of this is appearing and disappearing. If you just take it as a discontinuous series, discrete series not discontinuous discrete series thousands and thousands of flashes of consciousness that is Yogachara Vigyanavad they stop there Advaita says no no that cannot be uh, you know that cannot be the final reality all right let's stop here I I just uh, wanted a little uh, you know like a little break from our journey so next class onwards we'll get back on the uh, Vedanta Sara bus and go on with our journey but it just shows us how much debate, how much hard work, what ancient traditions are there in, uh, in, when you talk about these things. We, we glibly so, so easily pass over it. Yogachara said this and then next, on to the next philosopher. Yeah, thousands of years of tradition behind it. Hundreds of thinkers, monks and practitioners who have uh, devoted uh, you know, like centuries, lifetimes of work into developing these theories. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Sri Ramakrishna Rupa Namastu